Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As the second impeachment trial of President Trump played out this past week, the main question was, did he incite rioters to storm the Capitol? To explore that, we can look at the over 200 people that have been arrested and charged so far in the siege. Mostly, everyone there was a Trump supporter, some of which said Trump did inspire their actions. Others have been tied to far-right extremist groups. Some had ties to law enforcement and the military. And some were charged with conspiracy, the most serious charge. For more on those that stormed the Capitol and their stories, we'll speak to Tom Dreisbach, investigative correspondent at NPR. When we started this project, we were thinking about how every day, it seems, we're getting new charges brought by the Justice Department against people who are alleged to have taken part in the rioting and the insurrection at the Capitol. And so what we wanted to know was, are there any commonalities in this group? And honestly, looking at the more than 200 criminal cases that have been filed, it can be hard to find some trends. I mean, there are people who are alleged to have committed conspiracy, which is a very serious charge, and that they allegedly planned the attack on the Capitol for months, beginning as far back as days after the November election. And then there's people who allegedly just sort of were in the crowd and got caught up in the moment. What unites all of them really is their support for Donald Trump. And in general, this idea that they bought into the idea that the election was stolen from Trump and that there was widespread fraud. And really, there's no evidence that either of those things are true. You mentioned conspiracy. So this is one of the most serious charges that people can face in this. How many people were charged with this? And I mean, these are just the people that were caught and being charged. You know, obviously, if they were organizing, there might be a lot more people involved in it. But talk about the ones that we know, at least. There's around a dozen people so far who have been charged with conspiracy, and the charges relate to a handful of cases. In one of those cases, the government alleges that a group of people associated with the Oath Keepers, and if people aren't familiar uh, with them, they're an extremist far-right organization that grew up about a decade ago. They specifically target for recruitment people who are in the military or who are veterans or law enforcement. And the government has alleged that people in that group planned this attack on the Capitol going back for a while now. The government has also alleged that members of the Proud Boys group, this far-right, often violent and uh, hateful gang, they also engaged in conspiracy. And in one of the court documents, there's also an allegation that one of the Proud Boys said that he was going to kill Mike Pence if they had the opportunity. So these are some very serious allegations in these court papers relating to conspiracy. And those are some of the most serious charges that people in this large group of more than 200 now face. And you mentioned, you know, the Oath Keepers and how they try to recruit military and law enforcement. That's one of the things that officials and lawmakers are really concerned with is kind of the extremism crop coming up through these channels. That's one of the things they're looking into as well. There were a striking number of military veterans in this group. Around 15% had law enforcement or military ties by our count so far. And, and I should say that we continue to add to this database as more charges are unveiled by the federal government. And in the U.S., there's about 7% of the adult population are veterans. So it seems to be an overrepresented group in the defendants related to the Capitol. And 
experts on extremism say there's not a lot of evidence that veterans necessarily are more susceptible to extremist ideology. But the Defense Department does say that extremism in its ranks is a major issue that they're working to combat. The new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, says this is a top priority for him and the Biden administration. And there was actually a poll by the Military Times, the military publication, that about a third of active duty service members say that they had witnessed personally racist activity or white nationalist activity, like people with swastika tattoos, that kind of thing. And so clearly it's an issue that the military is actively dealing with. And there might be clues to the extent of that problem in these court papers related to the Capitol riot. Most of the people that are charged in all of this are being charged primarily with allegations of breaching the building, breaching the Capitol building. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, from there, the other charges can be added on destruction of property, all that other stuff. As I mentioned, uh, that are at NPR, you guys have like a full list. We know the names of these people. We know what they're being charged with. Are there any other stories of people that stand out to you? Because, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people did say, well, we were following the president. He told us to come out here. You know, they believe all this stuff going on. Any other stories that stick out to you? There's a couple things that really stick out with me. To one extent, I think in the immediate aftermath of the attack on the Capitol, a lot of the images that we saw were a little bit misleading. We saw a lot of footage from the rotunda of people sort of milling about. It didn't seem that violent. But as these charges have been unveiled, we have received word and evidence of really pretty intense violence that was brought on by these rioters. I mean, there's allegations against one man who is a military veteran who allegedly brought a hockey stick and beat members of the Capitol Police with that hockey stick repeatedly. Um, there's another allegations of, against several other people that came armed with bulletproof vests or bear spray, like a, which is an irritant spray, and that they use that against the Capitol Police. And then there are other people who appear to have just been along for the chaos of it, the allegations against one man that I read today, that he went in and found a bottle of wine inside the Capitol building, which he then chugged. He then took a book of Senate procedure and then allegedly sold it to a person for $40. And so the charges really run the gamut. It really describes a picture of absolute chaos and some extreme violence inside the Capitol. And, you know, we're watching a lot of the video, what you just described right now about the guy stealing the book and trying to sell that. That was one of the most curious things to me because I was seeing people on the floor of the Senate, I believe it was, and they were rifling through desks and looking for documents and taking Mm -hmm. pictures. And that was the most curious thing to me is like, who knows what a senator might have left behind when they got evacuated and all, but it could have been sensitive information. You know, that was one of the things that really stood out to me. And the federal government and the Justice Department has pointed that out, that people were looking at potentially very sensitive information. One woman allegedly took a laptop from Nancy Pelosi's office. Now, there's word that it was just used for presentations, that it wasn't necessarily super sensitive national security information. But obviously, when you have an unanticipated breach of the U.S. Congress, there is a lot of material that is could be extremely sensitive lying around. And I think we're still really only starting to piece together how damaging that attack may have been on a number of levels. Are we seeing that a lot of people are expressing regret for their actions on that day? One of the people that I saw a lot of coverage on was a woman named Jennifer Ryan. She was a realtor from Texas. She went out there. She said she believed she was following the president's orders to go out there. But she has this whole story of like, you know, I went out there with some friends. I didn't expect all this stuff to happen. But she, you know, at the same time posted pictures of herself to Facebook. I mean, really documenting herself doing the actions. 
But she said she feels really bad. She feels duped by the whole thing. I think she even asked for a pardon from President Trump. Obviously, she didn't get one. And this is kind of the sense that we're getting from her. You know, she's just completely remorseful. But are other people in this realm as well? It really runs the gamut so far. I mean, the sense you get from the court papers is that the people who went inside the Capitol, in many cases, seem to expect no consequences for their actions in the moment. I mean, people were posting on Facebook, on Instagram, they were live streaming as they were, and now, as the Justice Department alleges, committing federal crimes. They were creating the evidence that would later be used against them in court and possibly bring some very serious prison time in some cases. And in the days afterward, I think people's reactions have really varied. I mean, in some cases, we don't know whether someone has expressed regret or not because they're currently in jail awaiting charges because the government thinks they're either a flight risk or they're a risk for continuing to commit crimes. In other cases, you know, we have heard people say, I really regretted this. In a couple cases, people thought that President Trump was really behind them. And as you mentioned, Jenna Ryan said she was hoping for a pardon from Trump. That did not happen. So I think we're starting to get a a really wide variety of reactions as people realize the gravity of what happened at the Capitol and the serious prison time in some cases that they might face. Some people said they expected President Trump to be marching with them to the Capitol building. That's how that's how deep in they were. The last question I have is we're going through the impeachment trial right now. A lot of them are pointing to these all these instances and these people's words in that trial. But as far as these defendants, you know, using the defense that, well, we were following the president's orders, what have legal experts said about how effective that might be of a defense? Well, it's a potentially very risky legal strategy for these defendants. I mean, some defense attorneys have said they're going to use this. One defense attorney apparently went as far as to say that their client was brainwashed by Trump into committing these acts. But it's not a position that a defense attorney wants to be in because to use this defense that, you know, Trump egged people on to do this, you're already essentially admitting that my client did these acts and I'm trying to bring up mitigating circumstances. So that's not a position that any defense attorney wants to be in. But in many cases, as we mentioned, there's people who were filming themselves inside the Capitol and creating a ton of evidence on top of the surveillance footage and officer, uh, police officer body cam footage that's out there. So there is a mountain of evidence out there against some people. So they're looking for any mitigating circumstances they can find to try and use as a defense. Tom Dreisbach, investigative correspondent at NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Finally, for this week, the pandemic has disrupted our lives in many ways, including our social lives and friendships, and has possibly erased an entire category of friends we once enjoyed. People that might not be in our inner circle, but acquaintances, friends you see while watching sports, even coworkers you don't see as much anymore. All these friendships are described as weak ties. But for more on why these friendships are vital and the deeper appreciation we have for them now after the pandemic, we'll speak to Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. This is something that I had noticed pretty early on in the pandemic, but I sort of chopped it up to the fact that I am a really extroverted, social, chatty person. I love to chat with people, people who work at the coffee shop I go to and the UPS guy who always comes to my building and things like that. I just like to talk. So I I noticed that I was missing all of these like little incidental interactions pretty early, but I didn't know if that was something that people who aren't as social as I am were feeling. So as time wore on, I noticed more and more types of people I was 
missing out on and just how bummed out I felt about it all the time. And eventually I realized while watching a Netflix show in which one of the first scenes of the series is the main character meeting her boyfriend at a bar while everybody's watching baseball. And I just thought about watching football in a bar, the bar that I go go to every fall weekend normally and realized that I just really missed being around a bunch of like sort of familiar people all doing the same thing at the same time. I miss seeing the bartenders that I saw every weekend. I miss seeing lots of people who I know by first name or who I know by sight but whose, you know, social media information I don't have. And it's just sort of snowballed from there. And I realized that this was something that a lot of other people were experiencing too. We have our inner circle and we know those people and we try to keep in contact with them as much as possible. But this kind of outer circle, these people that also enrich our lives in a lot of different ways, they can be just as important as our main relationships. And sociology, I like the way you you mentioned this, doesn't really have a name for this, but they are called weak ties. So this is anything from acquaintances, as you were mentioning, people in the bars, all these other people. And I'm with you on that front. I miss those people. I think one of the reasons that people have had a, such a difficult time articulating this sense of loss that they have over these people in their lives is that we don't really have language in the U.S. to talk about all of these different types of connections. We have the word friend and we have the word acquaintance, but there's just not like a rich language around all the people that matter in your life. At first, I felt a little bit selfish because I have been really lucky. I have a lot of close friends within a couple blocks of my apartment. I have been seeing them throughout the situation in safe ways. We have access to resources to do that. So And I felt a little bit like I was being greedy by missing all of these other people, but I started to look into the sociology of it. And we need all of these different types of ties and relationships and interactions in order to keep us mentally and physically healthy. This has kind of far-reaching effects. It's not just people at the bar and all that. It crawls into work life, working from home life, all these different types of friends and casual encounters that we would have would shape you, kind of bring some little joy to your life. But these are different. Talk about this in the context of uh, the workplace now, because that's another big disruptor we've been dealing with. One of the first ways that it occurred to me that this might harm people in the long term in some way, or at least change their lives in some way in the long term, is at work. Offices are built environments meant to encourage certain type of behaviors. And often those behaviors are coworkers getting together and chatting for a few minutes in the communal kitchen, people collaborating with each other on a project in a conference room, things like that. Just being able to look across the table in a meeting and see someone else having the same reaction to something that you're having. All of those little interactions and then being able to run and get a cup of coffee with somebody spur of the moment because you run into, ran into them in the hallway. Those interactions make somebody part of a workplace, make somebody part of an organization, especially when you're young or when you're new to a job. Having those little interactions help you integrate into the structure of the place that you are. If you can't get integrated into that type of structure, then you have a hard time making a name for yourself, becoming a valued coworker, things like that. And it also hurts collaboration. I talked to one researcher about some stuff he had found about conversational reciprocity and What we need in the workplace, especially when one person is instructing another person on how to do something, is unstructured time for the person who is doing the task to put in their two cents, to uh, become an equal part of the conversation with, with their boss, essentially. And on Zoom and things like that, you lose those opportunities because so many of these digital interactions are very structured and everybody knows going into them who is supposed to talk and when and about what and for how long. You mentioned something, too, about kind of... uh isolation in your article 
when we don't have these other types of friendships and interactions too, it can push you further into isolation and in our bubbles and things that we see how these conspiracy theories start to flourish because we're pushed into isolation and these tinier bubbles. One of the things that really struck me as I was doing the research on this topic and talking to these experts is that the weak ties in our lives, the people on the periphery of our social lives uh, are a useful grounding resource. They, They keep us tied to our communities, to the physical world, to the people around us, to the cities we live in. And when you lose those people, a lot of people lose a really meaningful source of source of support, source of comfort, source of like a shared understanding of the world around you. So people go online looking for that. There are healthy ways to find that online. You might find a forum that's all about knitting or a forum that's all about baseball or whatever it is that your interest is. Or if you end up on the wrong side of the algorithm, you might end up in QAnon or you might end up uh, in an extremist Facebook group or something like that. Because what those groups offer and what, the, what they prey on in people is people looking for a sense of certainty, people looking for an order to the world, an understanding of the forces that are acting on them and what they can do about it. When you lose all your social ties because of a long-term disaster like the pandemic that we're in, those things become even more seductive to people, which is, I think, a big reason that we've seen a, an acceleration in those types of groups on the internet in the past year. According to some of the experts you spoke to, though, all is not lost. These relationships, these weak ties, so to speak, can be built up back again. And we're seeing vaccines roll out. We're hoping, obviously, things will get back to normal soon. And these are the kind of things that can pick up pretty quickly. I I, I did like the way, you know, people have been saying that there could be a roaring 2020s, similar to what happened after 1918 and the flu pandemic back then. And now we have this better understanding of how, of how important these relationships are to us. One of the big upsides that we have in front of us is that weak ties are definitionally low-pressure relationships. So these are not generally people who are going to be offended that you didn't text them to keep up during the pandemic. These are not people who you're turning down Zoom invites from. These are people that once you see them again and, and once you both confirm you're still there and still happy to be there, things should go in those relationships back to largely normal. And I think that people will be really, really happy to see everybody and perhaps bring with that a an understanding of what all of the people around us mean to our lives, not just necessarily our very close friends and people who are like us in you know socioeconomic ways that we would spend intentional time with, but the people who work at the grocery store, your barista at the coffee shop, people who work and exist in, in ways in our lives that our culture doesn't always value. I think that understanding all that we lost when we lost them as part of our everyday lives could be a step towards revaluing them in the future and understanding how much people who perform labor like that and who play roles like that really matter in a society and to ourselves as individuals. Well, I'm hoping for things to get back to normal quickly so we can get out to the bars and then watch football together, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, just hoping for those fun times to return. Amanda Mole, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.